you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, we'll be in chapter 2. Today we're calling this series Life Rebuilt. I'm very excited for this series out of the book of Nehemiah. Now traditionally this book, Nehemiah, is actually not its own book. It's actually included in the book of Ezra. It was originally written as one work. So it was just the scroll of Ezra and it had the stories of, of three different leaders leading remnants of Jewish people back from Babylonian captivity back into the city of Jerusalem, right? They were leading their people back into the city. And Nehemiah is the third movement of people back. And his story is the longest nowadays in our modern Bibles. We just split it in half there. And we have Nehemiah as its own book, its own story. But truly, Nehemiah's story is not just one of rebuilding a city. Uh, many of us are familiar with his story. Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And his story tells of how, how he comes back to the city and he rounds up a bunch of people and they build, rebuild the wall in an astounding amount of time. And they do really great work and then they reestablish Jerusalem as a city that can protect itself. And that is his kind of victory at the end of the day is rebuilding the wall. That being said, his story is about far more than that. His story is about far more than just rebuilding walls. But in order to understand all of that, we're going to have to talk about some Jewish history. That's what we're going to do at 9 a.m. this morning. We're going to talk about some Jewish history. And I don't know how excited you are. I don't know if you can tell. I'm very excited. I had my coffee this morning. I'm ready to talk about some Jewish history. So... The Jewish, Jewish history begins with a man named Abraham. Abraham comes into contact with Yahweh God in Genesis 12, and he comes into covenants with God, and God says, through you and through your family, I am going to bless all nations. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and through you and your family, I'm going to bless all nations, all people. He's talking about even us today. Through Abraham's family, we're blessed, and to be standing in this building today is as a result of Abraham and his family. We find our lineage in this just as much as anybody else. And so Abraham, uh, through the book of Genesis, it tells a story of kind of the next few generations of his family. And his family ends up in captivity, they end up in slavery in Egypt. And that's kind of how the book of Genesis ends, is, is they, they're not in captivity yet, but all the family has moved into Egypt. And then the, the book of Exodus begins with the people uh, coming under slavery in Egypt. And so God sends a man named Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. He, and then Moses, you know, he helps liberate the people. They're no longer slaves. And they go to the mountain of the Lord, which is Mount Sinai. And it's here that they enter into basically a marriage covenant with God. They enter into a marriage covenant with God at the holy mountain, and God gives them the Torah, the law, and he, and he comes into covenant with them. They come into a promised relationship together, and it's here that God begins to establish this idea of blessing all nations through these people. In order to do that, these people have to be set apart, and so God gives them the law to, to help them be set apart from all that are around them. And it's, it's truly here that the problems begin for the Jewish people because this law was a standard that they had to meet and they consistently didn't. And so for many, many years, to sum up a couple hundred years of history, uh, there are some times that they follow the law really good and there are some times that they follow the law really poorly and really bad and they turn their back on the Lord. Well, over time in, in Israel's history, they come into a time where they become a kingdom and they have a king. They have King Saul and then King David and then his son, King Solomon. And then there's a few other kings that are good and a few other kings that are bad. And there's like this big old split in the kingdom. And you have like the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. So in our passage today, anytime you hear somebody talk about Judah, they're talking about that southern kingdom. Okay. And what happens to the northern kingdom is they truly
really begin to turn their back on the Lord and the, the Assyrian people, the people of Assyria, basically wipe out the northern kingdom. They kill a bunch of people, they tear the land in half, they tear it apart, and, and it's really bad. It ends really poorly for the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasts a bit longer. There are still faithful people in Judah, and then it, we come to a point where everybody has turned their back on Yahweh God. They have turned their back on the Lord and on the marriage covenant that they've made with him. So God gives them over to their enemies. The, the people of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, they come and they destroy Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. They knock the walls down, tear the city in half, and knock over the temple. And that's where we pick up the story. About 150 years after that has happened, the Jewish people have been in captivity in Babylon for about 150 years. During that time, the Persians kind of take over the Babylonians because that happened like all the time in history was like one nation. There's always a bigger fish, basically. There's always somebody who can kind of come take you out. And so the Persian people take over. And so that's kind of where we come to our story today. It's out of all of these things happening, all, out of all of this history, that we begin to see these three movements of people back to the Holy Land and back to Jerusalem and Judah. The first movement of people is led by a man named Zerubbabel. I practiced that like a hundred times in the mirror yesterday. I don't think I've got it just yet. It's okay. We've got one. I've got a couple more tries at it. Zerubbabel. I got it. Okay, this man, he leads a, a contingent of Israelites back to Jerusalem, and he leads them to rebuild the altars to the Lord. He leads them to rebuild the temple, and so they've reestablished some of these things. The second movement of people back to Jerusalem is with a man named Ezra, and he's also kind of a recorder of history, and so he's where a lot of these stories are written down from, is from Ezra. Ezra leads more of a spiritual revival amongst the people, and he calls them back into covenant loyalty, back into relationship with Yahweh God by following the Torah. And he does this uh, by having kind of a Torah reading marathon. They all go outside for seven whole days, seven straight days. They just read the Torah out loud together. And if we want to see spiritual revival in Pueblo, that's what we got to do. No, seven days out in the heat reading the Torah together. It might work, though. Um, all that to say, Ezra leads kind of more of a spiritual revival amongst the people, and that's where, we, that's where we come to our guy, Nehemiah, and we begin his story there. He's the third movement of people back to Jerusalem. But it's about far more than just rebuilding some walls and rebuilding some buildings. So we have to consider for a moment what it meant for the Jewish people to be in exile. They were taken out of the promised land that God had given them, it was the full manifestation of God giving them over to their enemies. It's not just that they got to stay in the promised land and be lorded over by somebody. No, they were taken out of the promised land. They were taken away from the blessings that God had given them through their covenant relationship. They saw Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of the Holy One, burned down, destroyed. Its walls knocked over. It's in disgrace is what chapter 1 of Nehemiah calls it. That the city is in disgrace. And they see the temple be destroyed. This is the house that they've made for the name of God. That's what Deuteronomy 30 says. It is a dwelling place for the name. It was where God lived in the midst of the people. This is not just uh, a situation where they had to leave home and move away for some time. This was tearing apart their identity. All of who they were was wrapped up in the holiness of God. And that was, he, he gave them over to their enemies and all of that was destroyed. That's the situation that these three movements back towards the holy city are, are walking into. It's not just rebuilding buildings. It's rebuilding lives. It's rebuilding a spirituality for the people. It's rebuilding faith that was destroyed. Rebuilding faith that was taken down bit by bit. 
And that's the movement that Nehemiah leads, is a people back to rebuilding their faith. And so we'll pick up that story in Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, what we see is, is simply that, that there are some Israelite people who come to Nehemiah and tell him about the disgrace of Jerusalem and how it's an unprotected city. It has no walls. And Nehemiah actually begins to moan and cry and he mourns for some time and he fasts and he prays and he calls out to the Lord about it. And that was the sermon that Pastor Charlie preached last week was about the commitment of Nehemiah to doing this project. And so it's after this, it's after he fasts and prays for some time that we pick up our story and we're going to read the story of him coming before the king, the Persian king, Artaxerxes. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 2, and I'll start in verse 1. It says this, During the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why are you sad when you aren't sick? There's nothing but sadness. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Some translations actually have that as depression. This is depression. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. And the king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. Pleased the king to send me. And so like I mentioned just a few moments ago, this is about far more than just Nehemiah rebuilding some walls and asking the king to help him do that or asking the king to let him go and send him to do that. This is a spiritual restoration of the people. And so today we're, we're going to talk about three different uh, concepts, three different ideas for how we can begin to lay a spiritual foundation. That's the situation that Nehemiah has to walk into, is rebuilding a spiritual foundation for the people. And the first detail that we kind of see that Nehemiah walks in with, with this idea of a spiritual restoration and rebuilding spiritually is one that it takes patience. To lay a good spiritual groundwork for yourself, it takes patience. It takes patience. Now, there's a detail right at the beginning here that we read uh, that it says during the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's when Nehemiah comes to the king in the month of Nisan. Well, in chapter one, Nehemiah hears about, about the disgrace of Jerusalem and, and, and his burden for, for Jerusalem during the month of Kislev. Uh, that's what it says in verse one of chapter one. Now, does anybody know how much time there is between the month of Kislev and the month of Nisan? That's fair. I didn't until noon yesterday. Something like three or four months. Okay, there are like three or four months there where where Nehemiah fasts and he prays and he calls out to the Lord before he ever brings anything like this to the king. He had to experience patience. He gave it some time. He gave patience a moment to, to, to rebuild his faith. He took some time simply with the Lord. When Nehemiah is given this burden to restore the walls of Jerusalem and become part of the spiritual restoration of his people, he doesn't just immediately go start cold calling people until the idea sticks. Okay, he doesn't just uh, avidly and with zeal run out and go do stuff. No, he actually pauses for a moment and waits for the Lord. I don't know if any of you struggle with patience. 
I feel like that is a common denominator for a lot of people. Patience is not a go-to like virtue for, for us in our day today, okay? Amazon Prime delivered me a book the other day in one day. It wasn't even two days. And like, that was like, it was kind of like a high for me. I was like, oh my gosh, one day? Yeah, and now I expect that every time, Amazon. So, no, I'm just kidding. They set the standards, all I'm saying. Uh, we don't do well with patience. Nehemiah had to take a moment with patience, and he remains patient for three to four months, give or take. And in my mind, this is just as much evidence of faith in Nehemiah's life than, any of, than if he had just sprung into action. I think sometimes what we see is other Christians with a lot of zeal, a lot of energy, a lot of activity. They hear about this next Christian movement or this next Bible study, and they're just really excited, and they begin to go and do and do and do and do and live and live and live and live, and, and they pack their schedule out with, with like things for the Lord. And we see that, and we're like, that's, that's real faith. To be really active at church, that's real faith. I don't know if that's a healthy or even a biblical view of what faith is supposed to look like. Because Nehemiah's step of faith was actually to take a step back. It was to take a few moments. It was to remain in patience. The picture of faith we get from the scripture is this, that faith is living in the reality of God's promises. It is resting in his hope. It is not about all the actions you could do. It is resting in his hope. Dallas Willard defines hope this way. He says, hope is the anticipation of good not yet here. It's the anticipation of good not yet here. And I'll paraphrase one of his other quotes. He continues to talk about hope and faith. And Willard says that faith is living as if the good that we're anticipating to come is already here. The good of the promises of God is living as it, living, okay, living in faith. Sorry, I got tongue-tied there for a second. Living in faith is living as if the good of the promises of God are already here. They're already a reality. That's what living in faith looks like. For Nehemiah to live in faith doesn't mean that he has to run up to the king that, di- that day and begin to break his back over trying to build a wall. Now, Nehemiah's expression of faith was not allowing his doing for God to outpace his being with God. There's a difference there. All, all of the things that we could do for God doesn't necessarily mean that we are being with him or that we are pursuing him. Nehemiah's works are not outpacing his relationship to the Lord. And we'll pause here for a moment. I was first introduced to this idea of, of our works outpacing our being for God uh, through the study of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, EHS. This is one of the classes that, uh, through the announcement video just a few moments ago, we announced is one of the classes that we're going to be doing here at the church starting September 14th. Now, uh, I read this book a few years ago, and that's, that's where uh, Pete Scazzaro Pete Scazzaro is the man who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and he wrote the program, the process, all of these things that we're going to be running. Um, but he, he, his basic thesis is this, is that in order to be spiritually healthy, you must become emotionally healthy. You have to deal with your emotional wounds before you can grow spiritually, or you're going to end up growing in a negative way or in an unspiritual way. And so he gives a couple symptoms kind of at the beginning of the book for what it looks like to have an unhealthy spirituality. And one of those symptoms was your doing for God outpaces your being with God. You do for God instead of being with God. And and in real cliche fashion, he says, uh, uh, we become human doings instead of human beings, okay? And he says that as we become human doings instead of human beings in in God's kingdom, that can actually begin to rob the joy that Jesus comes to bring us because he comes to bring us grace and his presence. 
Not just a new place to serve, not just a new place to plug in, but a way to experience his presence. It's like we, when we came to the bread and the cup this morning, we are coming into the presence of God, and we are looking forward to the promises that he's given us, but living in the reality that they are already true. They're already true. We're already, we are already experiencing the good that he has come to give us, and that's why we don't have to exhaust ourselves chasing after just doing things for God instead of just being with God. That is an exhausting idea, to live pursuing acceptance from a God who has already died for you. We have to live knowing that that is reality already. The goodness of the promises of God is already amongst us. Part of that is relationship to one another. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, he says, for whom is our hope, our joy, our crown of glory at the coming of Jesus Christ? He says, who do we boast about? Is it not you? It's about relationship as well. See, because God's presence doesn't just change our relationship to him, it changes our relationship to one another. And the goodness we can experience here is also in relationship with other people of the family of God. You being in this room together with the people who are around you, you ministering to the people around you, you being with the people around you is already experiencing the goodness of the Lord, the blessings that he can give us through relationship here and now. We experience that today, but we don't experience that if we become human doings instead of human beings. We cannot allow our works to outpace just simply being with God, spending time in his presence through prayer, through silence and solitude, through these practices where we can begin to really experience his presence in our day and in our time. Pete Scazzaro says it this way, our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. Our activity with God, our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. I think that it's apparent that Nehemiah knew patience and choosing to be with God was far more important to the project of laying a spiritual foundation for the people than trusting his own power and actions to just go and get stuff done. He didn't need to rely on his own zeal. He was on God's time. He was willing to live simply in the presence of God and be obedient to that instead. The scripture says that Nehemiah takes some time to fast and to pray. And I believe that it's at this point in time that he also begins to make a plan. Because while we're being patient doesn't mean that we are just idle, okay? Being patient doesn't mean that we're not planning something, okay? And so uh, the second thing, the second concept we're going to talk about uh, in order to lay a good spiritual foundation is that it takes a plan. So in these three or four months that we just talked about, I'm sure that Nehemiah is making a plan. He is considering what all he needs to do, who all he needs to talk about, what all precautions he needs to take, things like that. And, and I believe it's, it's really unlikely that in those few months of praying that, that Nehemiah just kind of forgot about this burden. Okay? He didn't just lay it to the side. He was beginning to create a plan. Now, this last week, um, well, actually, probably like two weeks ago, it took, okay, I like moved offices really recently in the church building, and um, it, it took me about 10 days to do, give or take, and that's like kind of a halfway lie, because I'm still not really moved into that other office, but I didn't have a plan going in. I just kind of started putting stuff in boxes, it was like, oh, well, I need this pencil and this pen, and so I'm just going to start moving stuff over there, uh, and that ended really unorganized and not very great, and that's why, you know, I'm not really moved into that other office, but I'm out of the other one, okay? I'm just trying to get out of the way. It was not organized well, and it didn't end very well either. That's why we're still in the process. Now, I can't imagine that strategy would be in any way effective if I were trying to build a wall around a city. So that's not what Nehemiah is trying to do. 
He's not just going in blind. He has considered, he has thought about what it's going to take to talk with the king and, and to get this wall going and get it finished. So we'll read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. It says this, Then the king asked me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king... Let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests for the gracious gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah had a plan. He had all of his ideas organized. He knew what he was going to ask the king when he had opportunity. He had a timeline laid out. Uh, He knew the protections that he was going to need. So when he asked the king, could you write letters to these people so that I make it safely past the Euphrates River, okay? He had considered all the protections he was going to need. He considered all the resources he was asking for. He was fully aware that he was going to ask the king for wood to build a wall around, you know, a foreign city uh, and also for a home for him to live in. So when it says that Nehemiah was in fear, I, I imagine he was because he was asking the king to fund his mission trip, okay? He was, at, he was asking the king to fund his mission trip, and he didn't get like a stock letter given to him by the youth pastor at the church so he could try to raise money. No, he had to go ask the guy for these resources. And I don't know if they had Microsoft Excel back in the day, but I imagine Nehemiah was pretty good with the spreadsheets. I imagine he was a very organized guy to know exactly what he needed. He, he had all of this laid out and planned out. And it's at this point in time that we kind of need to take a step back. And there are little details about this interaction that we can miss if we just simply blow by them. It's easy to say, you know, Nehemiah had a plan. Okay, and, and for us to take on that idea and that concept in our lives, we're like, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to start setting goals. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, well, what, what I have noticed, especially in counseling people who, who feel like they aren't growing in their faith or, or feel like they haven't taken the next step yet, uh, my first question is almost always, do you have a plan? And so people are like, well, my goal is to read the Bible every day this year. Okay, but do you have a plan to do that? Okay, it's one thing to say that we desire something or that is our goal. It is another thing entirely to set steps before us to actually complete it. That's what making a plan looks like. Okay, for me, one of the things that I, did, I, I was struggling with was prayer. You know, sometimes it feels kind of strange to just talk out loud and just simply believe that God is listening to you. I, I've struggled with that over time, okay? You know, um, uh, my grandpa, he had a prayer stone. And he actually gave me that prayer stone. This was years ago before he had passed away. And now for a long time, it just kind of sat around in my room, kind of in the keepsake section. Um, but what, I, what, what, what he would do was when he wanted to pray or he wanted to be reminded of God's presence, he would rub the stone, okay? And that was kind of part of his like kind of plan for reminding himself about the Spirit of God and that the Spirit was present. And so that's a good plan for me. I take that rock. It's a different one now. I don't carry the same one. Uh, but but I, I normally, you know, it kind of stinks that I, I don't have it in my pocket right now. Normally, I keep it in my pocket. So, you know, illustration is kind of torn apart right here. That's okay. Uh, I have that rock with me a lot. And, and all it takes is when I go to check for my phone or keys or wallet or something, and I hit that rock, and I know exactly what that 
symbolizes in my life, what, what that image is in my life, is that God is here with me. So he's right here, right next to me. And that if I need to pray, that is just simply pushing my thoughts towards the Lord. Take the rock out, hold it in my hand, remember that it is simply all of life leads me to prayer. I don't have to let it be reactionary. I can just be praying the entire way. I don't need to feel guilt. Uh, the 500 times that I become distracted in prayer are just 500 opportunities for me to turn back to the Lord. That's what this is reminding me. That's, that's what it looks like to have a plan, to have something that, that, that are steps towards what your goal actually is. Some of us need to make a plan. Make a Bible reading plan. Make a prayer plan. Make, make a, a specific time of day where you are going to go and you are going to be alone. And you are going to sit in silence and solitude. And that's how you're going to experience the Lord's presence that day. Make a plan. That's what Nehemiah had to do. Some of the other details in this conversation that we see are just little things. Uh, but they're things that we can begin to see these as concepts and apply them to our life. Um, we can consider how simple this conversation between Nehemiah and the king actually is. That is just a few lines of scripture. That, that was just a few back and forth things. It is a very simple interaction, but this one simple conversation changes the course of history. Look at us. We are still talking about it today, 2,500 years later. It's the simple things that God requires of us that take boldness, sure, but can be divinely meaningful for thousands of years at a time. When it comes to laying out a spiritual foundation or rebuilding a life, we cannot discount the small conversations and the small things that God asks us to do. We can never discount the little things that God asks us to do, like reaching out to that coworker that we know is lonely or needs some attention. That coworker that we know is going through a difficult time but could use just a conversation. It's, it's seeing our neighbor struggling with the trash can and helping them take their trash out. We can't discount the little things that, that would simply just be living like Jesus would if he were us. I know that Jesus would help my neighbor with the trash. I know that Jesus would take time out of his day to give somebody some attention who simply needs to be loved that day. We can't discount the small things. That's what Jesus' ministry was truly built on, was the little things. It was intentional interactions like that. Another detail that's striking in this passage is, is at the beginning here where Nehemiah prays during his conversation with the king, right? The king asks him, what's your request? And Nehemiah is like, I prayed to the Lord, and then I answered the guy. And this is another one of those, those images and ideas that, that prayer doesn't have to be, you know, alone in your war room closet in your house or something. It doesn't have to be that. It, prayer is not something that is just simply reactionary, but it is always something we can be led into or lead out of. Prayer is something that is just consistently part of Nehemiah's life. It's obvious. Otherwise, he wouldn't be praying in the middle of a conversation with a king. It was just as natural to him as breathing. In the, in the, in the situations that we see from Nehemiah, his reaction is always in prayer. It's always in prayer. Uh, in chapter 1, when he gets news from Jerusalem about the need of his people, he prays. He fasts and he prays. And when the king asks him what his request is, his reaction is to simply pray. Just pray. Consider, consider the words of the Lord before we speak. 
The next movement of Nehemiah's story takes place in the holy city because we read here that, that the king approves. He gives the green light to the project and he says, I'm going to fund it too. And Nehemiah's like, right on, man. That's the gracious hand of the Lord. That is the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so he goes to Jerusalem. Okay, He goes to the holy city and that's where we will pick up his story in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says this, after I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went, out at, I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I had inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And I'm going to skip down to verse 17 here. It says, So I said to them, the people who were with Nehemiah, You see the trouble that we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding. Their hands were strengthened to do this good work. And so the final thing, the final idea that we'll talk about in this need for building a spiritual foundation is that it takes people. It takes people being around you. It takes community. It takes people that will celebrate alongside you what God is doing in our lives together. It takes having people around you that you can trust, that you can speak with, that you can follow God together. That's what it takes to lay a good spiritual foundation. You need a close group of friends who you can trust and who you can celebrate what God is doing in your life with. Um, We'll, we'll end our time together this morning uh, with, with a story. Um, my background in ministry is camp ministry. Okay? I did camp ministry for a few years before I came on staff at Fellowship of the Rockies. Um, and, and I used to work for a camp called Fuge Camps. If you've heard me preach before, this is like where all my good illustrations come from. So you've probably heard about Fuge Camp before. Uh, this camp is also the one that we still attend to this day as a youth ministry. So we went this last June. Uh, Fuge has locations all over the nation, um, but I worked at one that was in New Mexico, in Glorieta, New Mexico, and that's the one that we still attend to this day. Um, the last year that I worked, a few years ago, um, I was assigned 11th and 12th graders as like a Bible study, okay? And so uh, 11th and 12th graders are always the more fun kids to have in a Bible study because they may actually talk to you and interact with you. It's great. Um, <laughs> no offense, middle schoolers in the room. You're great. And you should come to youth group tonight. Tonight is the first night that uh, sixth graders moving into seventh grade can come to youth group and fourth graders moving into fifth grade can come to preteen. So brief plug. Anyways, back to summer camp. Uh, these 11th and 12th graders, their Bible study was built around, right, we would have a study for the week, um, but our mornings were split between that Bible study and then doing like team building rec activity type games that were always about building the team and getting kids to know one another. And one of those... Um, one of the more dangerous ones that we got to do was only with the 11th and 12th graders, and it was simply called The Wall, okay? Straightforward idea. There's a 12, 13-foot-tall wall standing in front of you, and everyone in the Bible study group has to get over it. Everybody's got to get over it somehow, all right? And the, and the wall at Glorietta, okay, it's not like you just drop on the other side. It's like a wall and then a deck thing with stairs, so like, you know, don't just fall over the other side. Um, but, but all these kids think they're really unique, but, but every group would do it the same way. Every single one of them. You'd get like the two kind of stronger guys who are like kind of bigger, and they'd be like, oh, I'll lift people up. You know, so you got like two guys kind of at the base of the wall, and they'd lift people up. And the first person they'd, they'd throw up there is like, like, you know, the little skinny 11th grade boy who like thinks he's strong, and they'd like toss him into the air, you know, and, and he'd like pull himself up so that he could help people up too. Everyone did it the exact same. 
same way. They almost said the same things too. Anyways, um, these... This, these groups would, would send everybody up the wall. Now, on, on Monday when you get to camp, none of these kids know each other, okay? Because they're all from different church groups, different parts of the nation and stuff, and then we mix them together and put them into groups. So none of these kids know each other on Monday. On Wednesday, they're dangling in midair together, okay? You got to trust each other with legitimate danger by day, by day three or so of camp, okay? And so it's these types of of activities, rec activities that, that show you that you can trust people, okay? You can trust people who have a common goal as you. If, if all of this group's goal was to get over the wall and to do it safely, then you could trust one another, even if you'd only known them for about 48 to 72 hours. You could still trust them. And that's the illustration is that there are people in your life right now that are in this room that are willingly committed to Jesus and to loving other people the way that Jesus has loved them. Those are people that you can trust, those are people that you can trust whatever you are walking through in your life. You can trust the people that are committed to the common goal as you, to, committed to the common God as you. We are com- when we are committed to Jesus and loving other, ways the way, loving other people the way that he has, that is an ultimate bond of trust. And those are the types of communities that we need to find in order to lay a good spiritual foundation for ourselves, for our families, for our churches, It's by being around people who are committed to the common goal of knowing Jesus, loving him, and loving others the way that he has loved us. Now, a lot of our time today, I've been talking about kind of rebuilding spiritual foundation or restoring spiritual foundation. It's kind of the language that I've used. Um, But maybe you're here today, and you have never laid any type of foundation spiritually. Now, there, there is one place that we can lay that foundation. There is only one place that can handle that kind of weight and is that type of trustworthy, and that is on Jesus himself. In the book of First Peter, the Apostle Peter uh, quotes the book of Isaiah, and he says of Jesus that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected that has now become the cornerstone, the thing that we can build on, the work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we just celebrated in our worship time together by coming to the bread and to the cup. We just celebrated the work that he has done, the grace that he has given us, and the foundation for what we can put our faith on. That love is trustworthy. That sacrificial love is trustworthy. And maybe you're here today and you have never actually laid that foundation. I want to challenge you to take that step. Lay that foundation Lay your hope on Jesus. Lay your faith on Jesus. Faith is simply living as if the good that he came to give you is already here. It already is. Grace is, is at your, it, it's in front of you now. It's at the foot of the cross. Grace is being displayed before you. Jesus has already loved you. Live in that reality today. That's what I want to invite you into. Go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes.